Hello and welcome to this special bonus episode of the Poisons and Pestilence podcast, Before the Storm, with Al Moroni. Uh, so Al, thank you very much for coming on the show. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? and how you ended up dedicating the vast majority of your career to uh, CB-related issues. Sure. Uh, thanks very much for having me on the podcast. I'm the director of the Air Force Center for Strategic Deterrence Studies, which is an academic center under the Air War College at Maxwell uh, Air Force Base in Alabama. I started my career as an Army chemical officer in in 1985. Just dodged deployment to the first Persian Gulf War in 1991 and got out um, of the military in 92, became a defense contractor working primarily around Washington, D.C. in uh, chem biodefense and counter WMD policy for the most part. In 2010, I joined the air staff as a civilian uh, working their Kimba defense counter WMD policy issues in the Pentagon. And then in 2013, I got the opportunity to come down here and be an academic and uh, teach other people about this great topic of ours. Uh, although we, we tend to teach more nuclear weapons issues than Kimba defense these days, that's um, probably because the Air Force has two-thirds of the, the nuclear trident under its uh, control. My interest in this, and in particular writing about chem biodefense history, has been partly from an observation that there's not a lot of people that actually do this. There's a, a great deal of literature that talks about agents, about the uh, warfare agents, and about historical events where chem bioweapons were used or or thought to be a threat, but there was practically nothing uh, about the Army Chemical Corps and what they did to prepare for these events during the Persian Gulf War and then during the 2003 Iraq War. Uh, And I thought that was uh, uh, not a great thing, that we needed to acknowledge both the preparations that were made and the decisions that were made going into these events as well as the lessons learned, if you will. If you don't document them, they often are bypassed or put in somebody's notebook and forgotten about for the future. So 20 years after Operation Iraqi Freedom, I thought it would be a good thing to review some of the policy and programmatic issues of that time frame to see if, if we're doing better, if we're if we're advancing our state of capability, or have we just kind of sat around and, and ignored uh, the last 20 years, which sometimes I think that's more the issue. I find ourselves uh, talking about the same things that we did 10, 15 years ago, and maybe that's just a sign of um, me getting old and grumpy, uh, or, <laughs> or may, there's a, been a lot of turnover in the chem biodefense field too. So I know there's a lot of new people coming in. I think 
there's many people that don't have the history of this. It's just been one of my points to at least make sure that my Army brethren, and ideally Air Force, understand this difficult uh, technical area and that uh, this issue of weapons of mass destruction is not as fatalistic as, as some people will say in rhetoric. Excellent. So what fascinates me is I've been reading on the history of, of the US adapting to the threat posed by chemical weapons right back sort of 1916 and then thinking about how they adapted to that and developed their own programs and then also 60s 70s 80s you saw how obviously there's an offensive dimension but also this trying to constantly learn lessons from previous conflicts in order to adapt and develop so I guess where we're coming at this now is is kind of late late 1980s is that right where we're sort of picking up the story of how U.S. adapted to it, its concerns about the threat posed by CBW, particularly to armed forces in field, but also at home. Is that right? Right. In reference to my book, uh, Where Are the WMDs, which was uh, printed in 2006, I, I had a little bit of a challenge in that I really didn't have a lot of material, as much material as I thought one might. Mm. Uh, so I expanded it to talk about what steps got us up to that point. So, uh, yes, there there was a time that, uh, and I think I've addressed this in a different book, perhaps, but uh, General Creighton Abrams, uh, whom the uh, tank is, is named after, made a decision when he became the Army Chief of Staff to get rid of the Chemical Corps. And him being a four-star, there weren't many people that wanted to challenge him on this. So they saluted. They said, yes, let's get rid of these guys. They haven't done anything for years and years. Uh, although that wasn't necessarily the case. It was the perception that chemical weapons weren't an issue. And for a while, for about four years, the Chemical Corps almost slipped away into obscurity. But we can thank the Soviet Union and supplying the Egyptian military with chemical biological defense equipment to wake up the establishment and say, hey, maybe maybe there's something still here that's going on. So the Chemical Corps revitalized itself in its way, in a way it ramped up in the number of units that it had in the 80s. Uh, the research and development always takes a little bit longer than you'd like. So in the 90s, there was a lot of things coming online. But in 1991, we were really not equipped for a significant chemical or biological war. So my my first book, which was Chemical and Biological Defense, talked about that, talked about all the deficiencies we had with protective suits, uh, detectors, medical, everything across the line was pretty miserable. Uh, while the Army had a rudimentary capability, the Air Force, Navy, Marine Corps were much, much worse. They did not have full-time specialists to, to address this. And Iraq had a significant arsenal at that time that we were worried about. Here in a wasteland of desert and marshes, two countries are locked in a war that seemingly has no possible military outcome. Iraq says it will use any means at its disposal to vanquish the Iranians, but says it has not used chemical weapons. But these Iraqi planes are fitted with rocket pods and drop tanks beneath the wings. The tanks are intended for fuel carrying, 
but are similar to the canisters Iranians found on the battlefield and claimed were full of poisonous gas used against their troops. The prospect of Basra being cut off eventually panicked Iraqi leaders into widespread use of chemical weapons. Iranian gas masks afforded little protection and chemical weapons were responsible for extensive Iranian battlefield casualties. Mustard gas and nerve agents were delivered by small, innocent-looking planes based near Baghdad. At first, the scale of its use surprised the Iranians, who were forbidden by Ayatollah Khomeini from following suit. In contrast, the chemicals that injured these people had been developed in Iraq under Saddam Hussein's personal supervision. At first, the world ignored the evidence, but in time, chemicals would be used in a manner that would shock international opinion. And an explosive development near the Persian Gulf. Word that Iraq has invaded neighboring state of Kuwait with fighting reported along the border. Unless Saddam Hussein withdraws from Kuwait by late winter, the U.S. will go to war. The skies over Baghdad have been illuminated. We're seeing bright flashes going off all over the sky. The people are shooting towards the sky and they are not aware or cannot see what they're shooting at. This is extraordinary. We're getting uh, starbursts, seeming starbursts in the, the black sky. We have not heard any jet planes yet, Peter. No plane. Now the sirens are sounding for the first time. The Iraqis have informed us. Well, we heard uh, Peter Arnett saying the Iraqis have informed us, and then we didn't hear anymore. This is probably just a technical glitch. Uh, they have four wires there that they can use, and those wires can be easily severed or pulled. Uh, Wolf, what have you for us at this moment? Strong indications here at the Pentagon that this uh, war may, may be beginning right now, and that the president may be going on television later this evening. Just two hours ago, Allied Air Forces began an attack on military targets in Iraq and Kuwait. These attacks continue as I speak. Ground forces are not engaged. We are determined to knock out Saddam Hussein's nuclear bomb potential. We will also destroy his chemical weapons facilities. Some may ask, why act now? Why not wait? The answer is clear. The world could wait no longer. While the world waited, Saddam sought to add to the chemical weapons arsenal he now possesses an infinitely more dangerous weapon of mass destruction, a nuclear weapon. The action followed a UN Security Council decision on Friday to review Iraq's compliance with UN-imposed sanctions. But this fell short of the guarantee demanded by Iraq that the review must lead to the lifting of trade restrictions imposed after Iraq invaded Kuwait in 1990. What is, what, is the, what is the substance of the letter? The Iraqi leadership have decided to resume full, complete cooperation with uh, both the ANSCOM and the IAEA. Following the end of the Persian Gulf War, Congress passed a law to force the services to develop chem biodefense equipment under a, a single funding line. Uh, that created what we call the DOD Chem Biodefense Program. That started getting some equipment in place by the 2003 timeframe that uh, I'm most interested in. So we had better protective masks, we had better suits, we had better chemical detectors, 
but we were just getting some biological detectors online. That, that was still a little bit new. And that was a great focus of concern of the military. They had really never deployed those in a military environment. And we didn't have a lot of them to go around. And the scarcity of biological detection units was one of the big policy discussions in, in 2003. We still did not have good decontaminants. We did not have good medical countermeasures. Uh, we were short collective protection shelters 2003 and, and earlier. It was mostly on individual protection, on making sure that uh, military service members stayed alive during a chemical or biological initial attack. But there was not as much effort in the sustainment and cleanup of uh, after an attack. And again, fortunately, those those were not tested. But those were, were issues of concern that, that I can get into uh, in more detail. Mm. Coming out of the, the first Persian Gulf War, what were the type of weapon systems that the U.S. were most worried about? Uh, and these were these things primarily sourced from the Soviets or were they sort of indigenously developed? I think the biggest concern in 1991 was the Scud missiles that Iraq probably bought from the Soviet Union at the time. or before the Soviet Union collapsed, I, I suppose, during the 80s. At the time, there was not a lot of air defense capabilities against ballistic missiles, theater ballistic missiles. And small countries like Iraq, I think the idea was that these nations benefited from having Scud missiles with chemical warheads as opposed to using pilots who might get shot down or artillery systems that might be outgunned by the United States. So. Small nations with a chemical or biological weapons capability rely a lot on ballistic missiles. I think that's the current North Korean concern as well. So going into that, for instance, the Air Force had to make up its doctrine on how to do scud hunting, as it was called at the time. Before 1991, never even thought about it. How do you go after mobile scuds that are constantly moving around the battlefield Stationary scuds, yeah, no problem. Go bomb them and uh, and you're done. But they did not have a good doctrine for hunting scuds that could move. Uh, and that was a big concern. I think there was a, a scud that got through and hit a military unit uh, in Saudi Arabia. I think killed like eight people. The, the Patriot missile system that we had was still kind of in development as far as its intercept capability for ballistic missiles. At the time, it was uh, looked at as a big uh, life-saving capability, a miracle uh, cure. But I think post-war analysis shows that the Patriots were not as accurate as, they, as we would have liked. So we were popping off like three, four, five Patriots to take out one Scud missile that was coming into a port. Uh, we did not have a good theater warning capability in 1991. So... If Iraq, for instance, launched one Scud that was aimed at Saudi Arabia, literally all the units, American units in Saudi Arabia went into mob suits because nobody knew where that thing was going to come down. So these were some of the lessons learned that I think we did apply well in 2003. I had a better Patriot system, had a good idea of working between the special operations units and the Air Force. We knew how to hunt Scuds. 
One of the wrinkles to the problem was by 2003, Iraq was developing their own indigenous capabilities for ballistic missiles. One of the concerns that the United States brought up to the UN was that there was UN resolution saying they were not supposed to have missiles that fired over uh, 150 kilometers, I think. And some of their newer systems were suspected they, they might. So I remember from your book, there was lots of discussion about aluminum tubes and whether or not and what missile systems they might end up in. So in addition to the concerns about Iraq's capability, you talk about the problem of being prepared defensively in the US and how this is in some respects in many countries is a perennial problem where technically there's often a good understanding and a good technical scientific base. I mean, I've been reading upon the Second World War and the Chemical Warfare Service and, and some of the work going on then around things like environmental detection and as well as meteorological work was very impressive. But the big problem seems to be that kind of economic ecosystem of products that the army needs or that the, the forces need and ensuring that that market is there, ensuring that the suppliers are there. And very often, obviously, it's very difficult to convince specific services or governments to spend money in advance of a problem. And so part of this seems to be the fact that in the run up to these conflicts, all of a sudden there was a realisation we need the kit. And it's interesting you noted about a fight to survive. We had a, another guest on who was talking about experiences in Germany with, with NATO forces and how at that point in preparation to fight the Soviets, the, the, it was very much a case of just shelter in place, um, <laughs> don't die or at least don't die till you fired your gun. And that was the kind of CBRN defence policy. Should we turn then towards the 2003 invasion? In the context of what was known in the kind of 1980s and 1990s, of course, we saw the move towards Operation Iraqi Freedom. And in your book, uh, I think you do a really good job in talking about the kind of intelligence context of of decisions that were made and in terms of the public communications in the run-up to that invasion. So why don't we kind of start by talking about the kind of immediate run-up um, to, to that action? Uh, we can't not talk about the public case that was made as well and the relationship between that and, you know, the intelligence assessments at the time. I cannot tell you everything that we know, but what I can share with you when combined with what all of us have learned over the years is deeply troubling. Iraq's behavior demonstrate that Saddam Hussein and his regime have made no effort to disarm as required by the international community. Saddam Hussein and his regime are concealing their efforts to produce more weapons of mass destruction. Saddam Hussein's use of mustard and nerve gas against the Kurds in 1988 was one of the 20th century's most horrible atrocities. Nothing points more clearly to Saddam Hussein's dangerous intentions and the threat he poses to all of us than his calculated cruelty to his own citizens and to his neighbors. Clearly, Saddam Hussein and his regime will stop at nothing until something stops him. So the biggest concern, supposedly, that the Bush administration had was that Iraq had not formally acknowledged where some unaccounted stocks of chemical and biological weapons were. And certainly Saddam Hussein did not give anybody reason to trust him. And in the aftermath of the 1991 exercise or all the UN inspections that had been going on throughout that, uh, 
but there were arguably tens of thousands of liters of nerve agent that were not accounted for. There was anthrax and botox and uh, aflatoxin that was not accounted for. On the one side, supposedly what I've heard from the arms control community is Saddam was a little bit sloppy. The Iraqis were a little bit sloppy in their accounting. So they may have destroyed a lot of these materials, but just didn't have proof about it. That was one side. The other side was that Saddam was doing a scam himself by suggesting that he still might have a capability so his neighbors would stay on the defensive. So Syria, Iran, Israel were all enemies that he was concerned about. And he wanted to still remain in a strong posture. He didn't want to be seen as being soft to the United States or UN inspectors, which was a double-edged sword in, in that respect. Sorry, that, that's a really interesting point. I had never thought about that in terms of like regional and the international games. So like the the idea of behaving in an ambiguous way, which wasn't necessarily meant to communicate anything to the US. It was actually meant to communicate something to to the neighbours who we know in retrospect, you know, places like Syria, they had certainly a chemical capability. Right. In our own doctrine, sometimes we put out this idea that smaller countries develop chem bio arsenals to deter the United States from invading them. And I think that is a, a short-sighted view sometimes in that these small nations have regional problems and regional opponents that they're more worried about than the United States. Uh, but that's another issue. So, so we had the arms control people saying it could be accounting errors. They had Saddam with his an ambiguous approach to demonstrating that he had complied. The third thing, though, was just the hard push that the Bush administration officials had on WMD itself. And you see the, a big change between what they were saying previous to 9-11 in early 2001 when the Bush administration is getting on his feet and getting his people into power. There's not this heavy emphasis on chem bioweapons or, or Iraq. After 9-11, big change. And in particular, the summer of 2002, all the administration officials are on the road going to the media, going to rallies, basically making these speeches that we know definitely Iraq has WMD. This will not stand. He has associations with terrorists. If terrorists get WMD, they're going to attack the United States. It was very, very much a hard sell. And yes, certainly there were some Democrats that went along with this as well. They were looking at intelligence assessments that were basically saying the same thing, that I, we don't know where these socks are. Saddam has questionable ties. There certainly was a drumbeat going up to 2003 as to... Iraq's capabilities. Another aspect of that, of course, was the, the famous uh, Iraqi defector curveball who went to the Germans and said, hey, I know about all these uh, uh, chem bio stockpiles that Saddam has and there are mobile biological laboratories. This became pulled into the CIA and was not adequately checked or perhaps overemphasized by some policymakers. And that became part of the story. So we, we went into this uh, idea that there were hundreds, literally hundreds of sites that might have chemical or biological weapons, not to mention a possible 
a nuclear program that might have been revitalized after uh, years of, of uh, observation. So where's the UN? One of the more fascinating things to me was that the UN moved back in to start their inspections and the Iraqi government was complying with them. Hans Blix comes in to help the investigation between December 2002 and February 2003. But unfortunately, for whatever reason, he did not write up his final report until June. And the Bush administration was not going to wait for the UN to finish their reports. I think there, there was a, a rush to judgment by the Bush administration for whatever reason, whether they legitimately believed that there was WMD or not. My feeling is that and I think this was um, uh, Paul Wolfowitz, who, who admitted to this after the war as well, said, yeah, WMD was just something easy that the public would understand, that we understood that it was not, not as black and white, that Saddam had new chemical and biological weapons, that he was going to give it to terrorists, that he was building the nuclear weapons. Uh, Doug Fife, who was the uh, undersecretary for policy in the Department of Defense, had a book that came out that basically said, yeah, the message was supposed to be, we can't afford to let Saddam develop a nuclear weapon, period. But in the interest of time, they kind of pushed an alternative message that said, we can't let chem bioweapons that Saddam has to get it with terrorists. The downside to that was the US Central Command, who has the responsibility for uh, running the coalition battle uh, in 2003, accepted all this information and intel and said, okay, we've got to manage this now. We've got 600 targets that we have to plan for. Obviously, we can't bomb them because if there are chemical weapons there, that would be bad. There could be some off-gassing. But we have to investigate every one of those and determine and make sure they don't get away to the terrorists who might be in Iraq. So in the middle of a war, what you don't want is people running in and walking off with gallons of VX or, or anthrax. It sounds a little bit fanciful, but that was kind of their idea at the time. So in preparation for this, OSD policy pushed for what they called an exploitation task force, which was kind of an ad-libbed organization. Uh, they took a, an army artillery unit headquarters that uh, they kind of hung several different organizations under that, uh, explosive ordnance details, uh, the chemical experts, DITRA, intel analysts, and they created uh, sensitive site exploitation teams that were going to go to each one of these sites and check it off the list as the war was going on. It's an interesting thing just to say, why didn't you wait until the war was done and then find this stuff? And they were like, no, 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 we can't wait there's going to be such chaos on the battlefield, we've got to capture those chemical stocks before they go underground, before they get released and, and vanish from the Middle East. Now, historically speaking, I mean, this rings a few a few bells. End of the Second World War, you saw some attempt to get to, there was certainly a race to some of the production facilities um, that the Germans were running. But this would have been, would you say, unprecedented to actually be able to send these teams in a conflict zone? It, it was unprecedented. There was no doctrine on how to do this. Uh, it had never been done before. Although, let me step back from that for a moment. There was an attempt in Afghanistan in 2001 to send in special teams 
to see if Al-Qaeda had chemical or biological weapons capabilities. You, you might recall that there was a famous video that CNN had where Al-Qaeda was gassing little dogs in a glass uh, plastic bubble. And that scared a lot of people. They were like, oh, what's going on here? We, we don't know what they did. Is this sarin? Is this hydrogen cyanide? We, we don't know. So they did have some search teams go into Afghanistan to try to go to those certain sites and identify what capabilities were going on, grab material, uh, figure out to what extent that Al-Qaeda had a capable program in that area. But that was in 2001. In 2003, we're doing it on a much bigger scale. During, as you say, during a military conflict, which has its own particular unique concerns, not the least of is uh, logistical assets. These guys did not have helicopters to go in. And they didn't have enough people to take on these large facilities that Iraq had. So a bit of context, I guess. Now, many of these facilities would have been identified under the previous uh, process of investigation in, in Iraq, right? Well, uh, when a UN team goes into a country, they are looking for cooperation by the host government. The idea of a, a UN inspection team is just to say, we went in, we asked the government to comply, we went to these sites, and we saw this, and we now make some judgments based on that. So the military is not going off of the arms control people are doing, but they're going off of deeper lists that the intel community and defectors, the Iraqi National Congress uh, that was formed uh, waiting for uh, Saddam to get overthrown, they were feeding information that was not necessarily accurate, but the intel community was like, okay, uh, we've yeah. got this information from defectors. Uh, we know that there's like a, a university there that could have laboratory assets that could include these materials. There are pesticide sites that might be dual use, um, things of that nature. And of course, as you mentioned, the Winnebago's of death. So the the yes. various um, mobile production facilities, which appeared in the, is it, how, how many sources do we think that came from initially, at the top of your head? The yeah. mobile bio labs, I think, largely came from Curveball. As Colin Powell, when he went to the UN, in February 2003, I think, he had pictures. And when you look at those pictures and compare them to a U.S. hydrogen generator vehicle, they look exactly the same. And that was the problem, that mm. somebody in the intel community uh, or the policy shop didn't do their due diligence and say, well, are these absolutely sure that these are biological laboratories or could they be something else? Could we have mistaken them for something else? And when the U.S. captured uh, these biological laboratories, it became obvious very quickly that they were not of a capability to create biological organisms. But before that understanding was made, the Bush administration started crowing about how they found the labs. They were, they were mm. uh, justified in their invasion because here's the, the smoking gun mobile biological laboratories that we captured. Uh, and they never really admitted that they had gotten that completely wrong. 
We never found any chemical or biological active weapons capability. We found some old ones from the 1980s, but nothing that represented an active program. Meanwhile, the 600-odd target list that we had and the drumbeat of Iraqis got chemical weapons caused the military to say, oh, we, we got to catch up. We got to get our kit together. So we got suits. We got masks. Oh, where's our decon systems? We haven't improved our decontamination systems for decades. That was a low priority. That was just something, for whatever reason, the military did not want to invest in because it's... Um, it's something that's not really used a lot. You can use individual protection gear for training, but there's not a lot of occasions to use decontamination systems or collective protection systems. You basically create these things and then they sit in uh, depots. So 2003 rolls around and they go, oh my God, we don't have decon systems. We don't have what we need to clean up after a Kimbao event. What do we do now? So, I mean, that's interesting. You also, I guess some of this kit we're talking about as well has a shelf life. So much of the stuff gets bought and is never used and then either ends up, at a, depending right. on what it is, either ends up sold surplus for training use or whatever, or just, you know, is, is gotten rid of. And I guess that you can see if you're a, you know, if you're a local base commander or whatever, and you've got tight budgets, the thought of putting money into basically into the freezer is, um, it doesn't really appeal. And you talk about a bit in your book, the fact that I imagine this preparation varied a lot between institutions, uh, particularly and arms of the military, um, in terms of how they went about doing things. In terms of appreciating this issue that they were facing in 2003, I mean, across the forces, was this something where independently kind of the arm, the various arms of the armed forces were realising this? Was there a, anyone sort of sat centrally who could see across the various forces and the situations they were facing? Well, there was a big difference between 1991 and 2003 in that in 1991, there was no single focal point for identifying our chem-bio readiness, if you will. So yes, every service was on their own to both identify their deficiencies and figure out a way to address that. In 2003, because we have this DOD Kimbao Defense Program, there is a joint program that says, okay, as everybody saw the drum beat from um, in 2002, there are already efforts to say, okay, let's identify our deficiencies, let's start creating capabilities, let's start up the production lines, both military and civilian, and start getting things in place. The issue was how fast we could get those production lines back up and running from a cold basis, if you will. And that, that was one of the, the bigger problems. Uh, detectors and uh, reconnaissance vehicles, for instance, don't come off the line very quickly, but you can make bulk decontamination systems. You can buy leach and water spraying vehicles that are from a commercial vendor very easily. And that's what en units ended up doing. That was yep. a sad thing. As you say, our, our decon systems were sitting on the shelf, degrading, falling apart, the military turns to the civilians and says, just give me what you got. Give yep. me a, a spray vehicle, something that can spray water, and we'll add bleach to it, and done and done. And, and of course, not to go too far into military acquisition, maybe that's for another time, but this idea of it been, you know, getting back online, in many respects, you know, these this 
acquisition routes were dependent on private sector. And so those private sector companies, there was not they they don't sit around waiting for the government to decide they're gonna, you know, they want an order for something. So his problem was it was it was even, I guess, I imagine finding even people willing to produce for the government or able to produce at such a short turnaround. Is that right? Well, interestingly enough, because of the 9-11 incident, there was a sudden spike in companies that were interested in doing chem biodetection defense issues uh, because terrorists, right? All yeah. the terrorists were going to come out of the woodwork and use chem bio uh, weapons in our cities. So there was a burgeoning small market of, of people that had devices. And I think in the book that I mentioned, two of them, one was a company that wanted to give the military a basically a fire engine with a big sprayer for mass decon on vehicles. And another was a company that wanted to give something similar to the JCAD, a small chemical detector. The, the problem wasn't the lack of industry interest. The problem was nobody was validating how well these systems work. Mm. Before the military buys a piece of equipment, they are famous for running them through a very long series of tests to say not only is does this meet what the industry vendor says it will do, but will it survive the military environment and the different climates that we go to? So the balloon goes up 2002, 2003. There was a race by several industry vendors to say, hey, I've got something that will scratch your itch. I've got the magic bullet. But are you willing to let that company give you that device without knowing whether or not it will actually work on the battlefield? That could come back to boomerang on military and political officials that if there was a chemical attack and the device didn't work as, as it was advertised, that would be really bad. It was, it was an interesting time in that there was a lot of cutting edge stuff that was going on out there that in forms of chemical detectors, biological detectors, suits and masks, but some of the basics were still missing. One of the, I think, the more valuable lessons that we need to learn is uh, on vaccination policies, for instance. We were concerned with one of the, the two more significant biological weapons, smallpox and anthrax, uh, that Iraq may or may not have had in 2003. Uh, so the idea is, well, everybody's got to get a shot then, right? Everybody going into theater. So that's not just active duty military, that's reservists. That's civilian contractors. That's your coalition allies who's saying, oh, yeah, we don't have a vaccination capability. We want some, too. And at the same time, President Bush says, hey, because of the potential for terrorist biological weapons, I want to have a national smallpox vaccination uh, program. And we did not have that capability to produce that much vaccine. So somebody in the Pentagon had to start saying, okay, who's going to go short? Are we going to short the military so that we give some to our allies? Do we have to ration out our shots to only people that are on the front lines and not people that are in the rear area? We have another combatant command, the, the Pacific, um, now Indo-PACOM, but the Pacific Command at the time was told, guess what? You're not going to get any new protective suits. You're not going to get vaccines. We'd like to pull anything we can out of your theater to support the main fight in the Middle East. And the Pacific Command commanders are going, well, wait a minute. 
We still have North Korea over the border. Remember those guys? And we know they have Kambio weapons. So there was this food fight going on within the Pentagon because of these scarcities of medical vaccines and, um, and decontaminants that was very difficult to sort out. And so the military did things that it needed to do to try to have some kind of capability. Uh, and then in the end, it didn't happen. The other interesting thing, though, I think, is th what kept everybody on edge. Of course, in 2003, we were still not sure that Iraq did not have a chem bioweapons capability. But our chemical alarms kept going off. And that's because uh, we found barrels of pesticides, barrels of industrial waste. And because our detectors are a little bit more sensitive than perhaps necessary, but for a good reason, because we, mm. we, we kind of err on the side of safety, there was this constant jumping to conclusions that, oh, yeah, we found something. We got to put everybody in the mop suits. We got to go investigate this site. And it ends up that because Iraq does not have an environmental protection agency, they're a little bit sloppy on how they store their industrial chemical uh, hazards. So that, that was kind of a, a post-war issue to say, we've got to now expand our capabilities to not just doing the warfare agents, we've got to worry about industrial chemicals that we might find on the battlefield as well. So just so I understand, in terms of detection capabilities, you'd have had, is it air sampling? Obviously, there's a, there's a, there's a tape stuff yes. you would use if you're on the, in the field, but there was also air sampling systems. And there was that both chem and biological, because I remember in your book talking a little bit about some of the issues they had with identifying uh, pathogens because of the sort of in-country limitations in terms of laboratories, laboratories, sorry. So what were the detectors that were actually being used when they when they went? Well, on, on the chemical side, we, we had what was called the M22 ACADA, the Automatic Chemical Agent Detector Alarm. And that, that was a good system. That was a much better system than the M8 alarms that we used to have in, in 1991. We had the chemical agent monitors, the CAMs, that were based on a British design, British and Canadian design. And, and these are all good systems, but because they might false alarm, we, we do have uh, backups that... Uh, laboratories that that can go in and and assess those i don't think the chemical things were that much of a concern I, the biological on the other hand was a concern we had 10 biological detection platoons at the time and we had a similar situation as to the vaccines of where do you put these 10 biological detection platoons everybody wants one we gave one to israel we gave one to jordan Obviously, we, we put a number in central command and the United States is saying, well, we want a biological detection unit just in case there's a terrorist incident in the United States. So we really were stretched thin with the biological detectors and the technology at the time, the what we call the bids units. It, there's, I think, five different systems in these Humvees to verify if it's an actual biological agent or if it's a natural biological organism. It's a good system. It's heavy. It's expensive. It takes a technician to figure it out. Uh, and, and the major problem is the time required to confirm that there, it's a biological weapon or not a biological weapon. 
basically our, our challenge was, and to a degree still is today, we cannot get our troops into protective suits quick enough if a biological agent cloud goes over our unit. Because once the alarm goes off, that means you've already been exposed because of the small amount of biological agent that's required. Uh, there's no way to get into suits, but have a, a detector that's sensitive enough to warn people before there's an infectious dose in the air. But because our governments are so concerned about the possibility of biological warfare, you can't just rely on a field unit saying, yeah, we got a hit, we've got our smart tickets, and we got a positive for anthrax. I think there was a, an army medical laboratory in Kuwait. I might be wrong there. I know there was at least one army medical laboratory in theater that would give a confirmation, which would take you know 24 to 72 hours before they could validate on whether or not it was a weaponized agent. And then the sample would be shipped back to the United States and go to Fort Detrick and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention for positive confirmation that the field laboratories were right. So this very long chain of biological detection is not just for protecting the soldiers, but it's to support political decisions that have to be made down the line. We'd all like to have a tricorder that told us that the second we turned it on, yes, this is a biological or chemical hazard, take appropriate actions. <laughs> that tricorder does not exist yet. Yeah. Uh, but that doesn't stop the military from trying to seek it out or, or fund research and development to, to try to do so. So you have various dimensions. You have the wake-up call that Iraq 2003 provides for homeland security. And I remember reading that there was a similar debates and grabs for capability across different government departments looking to give you know masks and, and so on for people at, at sensitive sites in the US and make sure that their employees in the event of a, an anthrax type, for example, had masks and those sorts of things. There's also this issue of the, you know, the exploitation task force. And I guess the broader issue then was also the broader uh, CBR preparedness and training for, for troops on the ground and the incentive that the conflict would provide for that. So it's a bit of a strange question. So in terms of lessons learned from the WMD incident that, that wasn't, what do you think the, the lasting legacy of this invasion was for CB policy? I think this is not necessarily a good news story. My observations are that after 2006, 2007, it really starts to set in that there was no WMD in Iraq and that threats of retaliation probably do a pretty good job of scaring smaller countries into not considering using chem-bio weapons against the United States. As a result, we don't need to put more money into chem-bio defense. The chem-bio defense funding between 2008 and today has largely been static with small little bumps here and there, but it, it has not really grown at all. And there are still significant deficiencies that we're trying to address. Uh, we don't necessarily train any harder than we used to back in 2003, 2004. 
uh, we have a series of policy documents like the Quadrennial Defense Review, the National Security Strategy, the National Defense Strategy. They barely mention WMD anymore, uh, certainly not like we did in the early 2000s. And we can argue about whether or not uh, fighting uh, terrorists in Afghanistan for the last 20 years has uh, done anything for the Kembao defense community or not. There's been a move of priorities where Kembao defense is not seen as, as particularly relevant in today's fights. That may be changing. There's always mm. people that are looking at it with a new uh, perspective. But the bottom line is the budget hasn't changed for Kembao defense. We're still investing in protecting uh, suits uh, detectors. We're still neglecting decontamination and collective protection. Our medical programs are going in all sorts of directions that uh, I don't necessarily think is, is helpful. Uh, but I, I like the Exploitation Task Force, for instance. For years, there was an argument within Department of Defense as to whether or not we should develop a, a standing capability. Never happened because nobody saw the point of it. There's no priority. Nobody wanted the responsibility. There was no money put against it. So it kind of died. It's generally understood that the Army will do this because they've got the chemical corps. But as a policy issue, it's, it's not really something that's discussed. The other issue is uh, contaminated bodies, for instance. What happens if you have 5,000 contaminated bodies with anthrax or, or uh, VX? Are you going to bring those home and have a funeral with possible off-gassing of chemical or biological agents? Uh, we don't really have the capability to quickly decontaminate human remains and get them back to the United States for a proper burial, for instance. So we do workarounds. DCOM standards. There's the eternal question in our community of how clean is clean enough? Uh, how clean is safe? And the issue is always, well, it depends, right? It depends if you're talking about military forces or if you're talking about civilians. Uh, are you talking about um, long-term remediation? We had that little event in Japan with uh, the Fukushima reactors. And when that happened, there was this sudden realization, and mind you, that's in 2012, far after our, our experience in the Gulf. There was a realization that we had no standard for cleaning up radioactive contaminated military equipment. Uh, so for many people to include within the military, you say radioactive, and you get that freak out, right? That says, oh my God, I don't want to get cancer. I'm not going to touch that if it's got radioactive emissions coming off of it. So how low do you have to go before it's considered safe for an unprotected civilian to work on after it comes back from Fukushima? Nobody had an answer. So it took about a year for the Department of Defense working with other government agencies to come up with a standard and it was not a great standard, but it was at least a standard. And somebody said, well, what about chem and bio? Maybe we should work on those too. Uh, we kind of have a chemical cleanup standard, but bio remains the great unknown that nobody wants to say how clean is safe with biological agents because biological agents vary so much between bacteria and viruses and other different characteristics that they might have. 
the only thing that people think is safe is zero. And the problem is you can't measure zero. You can just kind of uh, use procedures like hospitals use, like autoclaves, and eventually you can come to an agreement that it's probably clean enough. But that takes a lot of money. That takes a lot of effort. Uh, we still don't have a good understanding of how clean is safe 20 years after the Gulf War, the 2003 Gulf War. And I, I think that's a, a failure on our part to accept some kind of risk management to say, OK, here's the levels that we'll accept and let's just go with it until we're proven wrong. Nobody wants to make that call. It's a could be political suicide if somebody gets ill after a something comes home and it ends up it wasn't cleaned up good enough. Mm. Hearing about this periodic response from to major events is the fact that the cruel paradox of 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 all this is that a good defense setup should act in itself as deterrent against use. Because if you ever have low-hanging fruit where there is an ability to do something shocking which outmaneuvers your adversary temporarily that becomes the incentive to use it if you're confident that your adversary has the defenses and would be able to absorb it pretty quickly there is much less of an incentive to to utilize such an unusual weapon system in the battlefield for example so the cruelty being that the more successful these organizations are in convincing that there is an ability to respond and, and don't even bother because we can respond to it the harder it becomes to justify their resources because these incidents they don't happen and yes. so um and i guess it's also so much of this sector seems to be about maintaining ways of continually rehearsing for something and it seems to be in some respects it's the rehearsing itself which becomes one of the most important dimensions um do you think we'll ever escape the boom bust approach we have do you think that's kind of we're locked into that as we have been for the past 100 years or so. Oh, we're absolutely locked into that, yes. I mentioned in the book, in, in 2001, 2002, we have a, a, an inspection agency that went to our technical army units that do this for a living and found out that they were not as well-trained as, as they were supposed to be. Uh, and are we doing it any better today? Uh, one could argue one way or the other. It's It's hard to tell. But yes, continuously over history in um, 1917, 1941, 1950, 1975, you can pick almost any crisis point in history where the United States, the United Kingdom has faced a, a threat of um, WMD and they said, oops, we got to do a crash course now and, and relearn everything we were supposed to have done already. That's the only way that I think our policy works is because, as you say, you know, periods of time go by without anything happening. Everybody gets a little lackadaisical and says, oh, we must be doing a great job. We don't have to worry about this. Deficiencies form. People forget. Uh, there's turnover. New people come in uh, and they don't know what they don't know, to, to use a phrase. Mm. Crisis comes. And we all run screaming, oh, we need more training, we need more equipment. It happens over and over again. And, and I think it's it's something we're doomed to uh, mm. repeat in the future. So I guess it's thinking about what is the lowest acceptable threshold for that baseline knowledge during those, in, during those periods? Because I assume someone like yourself would argue it should be a lot higher 
than it is. Well, I think that on the good side, the services, at, at least in the United States, I, I'm not going to speak for other countries, but protective masks, protective suits, we have enough training to ensure that individual survival mechanisms are in place mm. that um, at the very least, at the very least, if we get caught in a conflict with chemical and biological agents, our service members should be able to survive, hunker down and wait it out. And hopefully that will be good enough. It is not the optimal condition that we would mm. like to see. Uh, we, we keep talking about fighting through a chemically contaminated environment, for instance. That's a high bar. And yeah. some units might be able to do that. Other units might not. Uh, that That is a high standard. That's where we'd like to be. But at the least, I think we're ready uh, through our individual protection uh, measures to, to make it out. Now, the policy discussions is, is what I focus on. I, I think there's a lot of relearning by people that go into policy offices to understand the decisions that they have to make, like doling out vaccination uh, programs, like discussing with allies how they're, well, we're going to protect them in addition to protecting our forces. Uh, there's, there's a lot of diplomacy and policy efforts that because of the technical nature of our business, people that have an international relations degree, for instance, may not be immediately knowledgeable about what challenges face them in a, in a future conflict. But I think, you know, knock on wood, I, I, I think we, we have the right kit for individual survival. And it's just a, a continuing challenge to try to say, but we should be able to do better. I think that's a very positive, uh, forward-looking way of ending uh, today's episode. I really enjoyed speaking to you today, and I'm sure our listeners have got so much out of that. And just, I guess, what's left me to say is to say thank you very much. And uh, have you got any more books in the works? I just had a book come out this past year uh, called Biocrisis, which takes a look at how the U.S. government is developing biodefense policy. A fascinating time to talk about uh, the differences between natural disease outbreaks, deliberate biological attacks, and laboratory biosecurity incidents. Right now, both the U.K. and the United States are have bio strategies, biodefense strategies that say it's all the same. They're all biological threats. And my latest book, which I, I think came out in the spring, uh, says, no, that's absolutely wrong. There's really bad policy issues that could happen because of that particular way of looking at biologicals. Um, so I, I don't have any other books in the work. I, I just, uh, every now and then I write some articles that come out and stir up the community um, <laughs> well we, just finished, put... Sorry, yeah, we just finished our chem email program that was a big success so i um i put a little article up on linkedin talking about the army's uh, uh successful conclusion of that but books books are a big thing i i, I don't have any big book projects right now well that's fantastic and don't worry i will uh, put up a link to some of the relevant works that we touched upon uh, in our discussions today for people to to go and find them um so thanks very much 